Welcome to the Family Alpha Podcast, a place where men, families, and the truth have a voice. The information shared on this podcast is meant to be applied. Now, here is your host, Zach Small, founder of thefamilyalpha.com and co-founder of thefraternityofexcellence.com. Let's get to work. Welcome to another episode of the Family Alpha Podcast. I'm very excited to bring my guest on today, Noah Ravoy. Noah is the creator at smv4k.com, a former minister who is now a men's coach, a men's leader, and he's created a program to help men help themselves. And I say men, but I believe this program can actually help men and women. So anybody that's listening, anybody that's looking to improve themselves, we're about to talk about a book and a course that can get you from where you are going to where you want to be going. This newly released program is Reprogram Your Life, Your Pathway to Agency. It's designed for smaller groups. Once you make it through the group, you are given this book to go forward with. And Noah, welcome to the path. I'm really looking forward to diving into this. Thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Um, I think this is something that's going to be really interesting for your audience. So reading your about and going through your story, you're a husband, you're a father of three boys. You know, since 15, you've, you've been business oriented people-oriented, what is the foundation? And we're going to dive into the program and the book, but what is the foundation that sort of set you on this path towards wanting to help others and bring people together to improve their lives? I think that part of this is right in my name. So the name Noah, it means the, the uh, uh, hope and a source for hope. So it's the person that would bring hope to people. And if you look to the Bible story of Noah, he brought hope to a world that was falling apart, that was in chaos, and he brought an opportunity, a hope for them to get into a better situation. And so that was, you know, I was given that name for that reason in particular. And my parents told me uh, or set me on a path that uh, your mission in life is to bring hope to the world and to help people uh, just like Noah helped people. And, you know, I'm not going to build a physical arc, but to build structures, to build things that can help people and can get them through difficult times in their lives that, you know, a lot of people are going to get wiped out by difficult times, but those who have agency, those who are federated together, working together with a, a brotherhood or a sisterhood, those are the people that are going to survive difficult times like we're facing right now. It's, it's incredible. The power of the name, you know, I, I, had not expected that as your response, but it's incredible. The first person to share, you know, their name sort of set them on that path and that it captures the meaning, it captures the push and the desire to, to spread that sense of light where there's a lot of darkness going on. You mentioned agency and in the title of the book, you know, it's reprogram your life, your pathway to agency. What is agency? Well, it's, there are two main parts to agency. One of them is a sense of self-ownership. So it's the recognition that you are, and you alone are responsible for your thoughts, your emotions, and your actions, and that you can have control over them. And the other part is the practical skills to actually do that. So no one develops the skills to control themselves if they don't think it's possible. So you have to know that it's possible first, and then you have to actually work at those skills. It's not something that happens through just growing older. You know, you, we say that with age comes wisdom, but sometimes age comes on its own and you just end up getting older, but you don't get any wiser. And so agency is taking that knowledge that you can control yourself and applying it to learning how to do it. 
Now, how does this work with the group setting, though? You know, I understand sitting one on one, you know, doing some training like that. And inside FOE, you know, that's that's my version of having a group where we can work together. But this is this is more than that. This is a very structured program that is 12 weeks long. And correct me if I'm wrong. This is for men and women or just men. Uh, right now, we're doing this book was written uh, from a man's perspective because women function differently. The way that they, you know, you, you can say to a guy, you got a guy in your group, you can go, dude, you're looking kind of fat. You really should go, you know, cut your cut some carbs and start working out. And he's going to go, oh, thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Um, and he'll take it as a sign of love. You can't say it that way to women. You know, you're, it just doesn't work. And yeah. so we've written this book to be very brutally honest from a very masculine perspective. And we're going to take the same information, the same activities, and we're going to rewrite it from a perspective that will work well with women. And I, I don't think you, you can go through a process like this in a mixed sex group. So you have to have separate groups anyway. And so being a man, I started with men. Also, I think that if we improve the level of agency in men around the world, to a large extent, women will follow suit. Women who are married, they tend to learn from their husband and become more like him. So if he has agency, she's going to pick it up over time. He's going to teach his children. And if we weren't able to get to the book for women, just the book for men alone is going to produce a change in society that will ripple out to everyone that that man knows. His standards for, his, his standards for behavior and those around him will increase which that's even a, something nowadays to say, I have standards of behavior for other people is, is taboo, but it is part of having agency is having limits to what you will accept from other people. And that improves us when the people around us have a high standard of behavior for what they expect of their peers. Then if we're peer to that type of a person, we'll improve as well. So this is why we targeted men specifically. You know, I, I wanted to ensure I was speaking from the, the proper perspective. And I, yeah. I really look forward to seeing you build that up for women as well. You know, but your point on if men improve, everything, women will improve, children will improve, families will improve, politics will improve. You know, it's, it's a cascading effect, but it all starts with the man. And with that, yeah. you know, personal sense of responsibility, with that sense of, you know, personal agency, if you will, you know, these men, they're like, all right, well, I'm interested in improving. But there's a thousand, you know, YouTube courses out there and improving. How is your group setting different from that? And how does I, I understand theory? And you're a very I've read your writing. You're a very very intelligent man. But for the the common man out there, he's like, what what are the nuts and bolts here? What what can I work with? And how does this really impact me in my life? And why do I need this course? You know, running with four to twelve other men compared to just well, I can go to that YouTube video and I can click that and you know hit play and it'll tell me how to be a man. Yeah, it, it is um, a common thing among self-help books. You know, I could have just given this away as a PDF and the entire world could read it, but it actually would have less of a reach that way. If I sold it as just a book, it would have less of a reach. People would purchase the book. They'd read the first two or three chapters. They'd put it on their shelf and then they'd forget about it. And that's what happens to most self-help books. Most Gumroad courses aren't finished. Most self-help books aren't finished and they just collect dust on a shelf. The reason is, is we're not meant to make major changes to our psyche on our own. That's dangerous. We've never done that in history. We used to be able to go, you know, if we go really far back, we'd go to the shaman and we'd say, look, I've got these, these issues. And the shaman would give us some special tea and we'd sit in the sweat lodge and, you know, we'd talk it out a bit and we'd, you know, get some 
you know, man, man, uh, uh, man therapy is different than women therapy. It's not really a lot of talking. It's mostly doing. We do things which helped us get over whatever it was that was bothering us. And then we go back to the tribe and we'd be fine again. We'd have excised the demons that we had, whatever it happened to be, and we'd be back in the tribe again. We're not meant to walk all alone. We're not meant to be lone wolves. We're meant to do things in a group because this way we have accountability. You know, every, anyone who has gotten in shape knows that every bit of information to get you lean and muscular is available for free online. And yet we live in a world where most people are fat and out of shape. Why? Because their motivation, our motivation for to take care of ourselves is often less than our motivation to be a part of a group and not be the weak link in the group. You know, we, we show up to the gym as part of a group. We don't want to let our brothers down. We want to make sure we're there. And this, especially for men, this honor of, you know, I've, I've committed to something in front of a group of people. Uh, this is, you know, this is the entire basis of ideas like marriage. We commit to marriage in front of a group of people because then we, we have this honor that we have to follow through on it. And so working with a group, working with a small group, four, five, six men, maybe up to 12, um, what it does, it gives you accountability. It means that you're going to go through the 12 weeks. You're going to finish. No one that started the course didn't finish. And I've done a bunch of uh, betas while I was developing the course. No one that started failed somewhere along the line and stopped the course. And this isn't your average course. This is really deep and it can be painful and it can be difficult. Um, you know, this isn't just like getting strong. This is like rehabilitating all of your, all of the things that don't function in your life and in your psyche, kicking them all out, rewriting your own programming and deciding how you're going to think and act and feel for the rest of your life. And that's a difficult challenge and probably impossible on your own. And I noticed that because at first I wrote a lot of this as blog posts and people would read it. And it was maybe 20, 30% of the people would apply it. The rest needed to come back to me and have coaching so that they could go through it step by step. And that's very time consuming. I can't coach that many people. But when we train in groups and later on in the uh, next year, when we start authorizing trainers to do this course all around the world, we're going to be able to reach out to tens of thousands of men over the next few years. There is, I've seen this firsthand. There is true, there's something different about performing something like this in a group as opposed mm -hmm. to on your own. And and I was being a little bit, you know, I was going pretty extreme saying, oh, I'm just going to click the YouTube video. You know, there are infinite videos on infinite ways to fix yourself, to learn, make money, lose weight, etc. You know, in the group setting. And when I say firsthand, I published a book, 31 Days to Masculinity. And it's 31 days of, of what you're talking about, overhauling the self. And the, the book will sell. I'll send the PDF if somebody, you know, is struggling and they can't afford 15 bucks, whatever it is on Amazon. I'm like, hey, I got you. Don't even worry about it. They all come back. You know, I, I did well when I run the group ones where I run, hey, we're doing a whole group and we're going to go 31 days together. The guys come back. I have to be in this group. I tried it myself, but it didn't work. I gave up. And in the group, they're like, but I saw it through in the group. And it was totally different. And the story is always the same. Not once. And this is, this is hundreds of samples. Not once has somebody been like, oh, the group what was harder or I, I gave less effort than when I was by myself. And yeah. one of, there's actually a man in the FOE who was in one of your beta tests and he said, your program 
is like the marathon of, of going through everything itself. He's like, you know, 31 DTM is like a quick hit, get in, get out, and then go figure it out. Where yours was much more in depth. You, you, you go into the deep end and you swim around in it. You know, for mine, you jump in, you figure it out, you get out. Next pool, next pool for 31 days. And he was really impressed with how deep it went. And he's like, he's been through my course. And he's like, wow, going through yours, I went even further. I learned even more. But he's, he said, working with the other men, it was the same, like you said, you don't want to be the weak link. And I think a lot of men who are on this path of self-improvement, they keep hitting this wall. You know, like I'm trying to do it myself. But why are you the way you are this year, the same as you were last year? Why is your family struggling with the same issues? You know, why are you still struggling with your wife? You want to be better. And maybe you'd think you want to be better and you have all these reasons for being better, but it's not changing. And programs like yours and joining that group, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that you're also training trainers because you are one man and it's a limitation I faced myself. I, I can only do so much, but when you can like, hey, you go run this and you go run this, it's incredible you know, how far those ripples can go. And we talk a lot about excuses and I want to dive into that as well. You, you kind of thwarted anybody who could bring this up. You kind of were like, we're ahead of the curve. And I was like, yes, <laughs> because I've heard it. I can't do it because of limited resources. I can't do it because, you know, he had this when he started and I didn't. So you talk about the seven limits of agency. Could we go and just tick through each of those and just do a brief, you know, we don't have to give the whole book away, but kind of just yeah, yeah, no, no problem. dive in. Let me just uh, open it up because I am dyslexic. So I'll <laughs> I won't remember me. the list. When, when I hit the I list and I started order. going through it, I truly was like, wow, this guy gets it. Because I every single one, I was like, I've heard that. I've heard that too. I've heard that too. And it's the way you hit it, it, it allows the man to be like, all right, I'm not going to be allowed to just toss this out there. And well, here's my reason why I couldn't do it. Yeah, no, it, it's that is part of it. And the reality is having agency includes knowing where your limits are. Uh, there's a great line from one of the Dirty Harry movies where he says, you know, a man's got to know his limits. And it was uh, one, one of the one of the bad guys took him on and ended up getting killed. And he's, you know, man's got to know his limits, how far he can go. And that is a big part of being a man is understanding your limits and your the areas you can't compensate for. The fact is, is, you know, you're only so tall. You can't make yourself taller. You can get fitter. Uh so the, the, first, the first of the seven limits is knowledge. And basically knowledge and on the other end is ignorance. So you either know things or you're ignorant of them. And we do have knowledge limitations. We don't know everything. In order to overcome that, we literally have to be a god. We would have to be omnipotent to know everything. And that does limit our ability to exercise agency. It doesn't mean, though, that we cannot have agency simply means that we can't, actually, can't exercise it at a godly level. But I don't think anyone's expecting to, to reach God-tier levels of agency. Um, another important one is intellectual limitations. So we're only so smart. I, I have this happen quite a bit. People will say, well, yeah, but that's easy for you or easy for so-and-so because they're really smart. They're really intelligent and they can figure that out. And there is limits when you have limits to intelligence, but there are a lot of unsuccessful, very intelligent people. You probably know people like this that I don't understand. He's tall. He's good looking. He's smart. He's personable. Why is his life such a mess? You know, you've probably, you've probably met people like that. And the reason is, is they don't have agency. They're like a Ferrari with no tires, you know? So it's just sitting there spinning on the rims, going nowhere. You need traction. You need to be able to get traction in your life. You need to be able to take all of your abilities 
and put them down on the road and go somewhere and, and make it go. And in fact, very often the most intelligent people end up overanalyzing, overthinking things. And then the intelligence itself becomes a limitation because they think too much and act too little, which is a big problem that limits our agency. When it comes to the, uh, also on intelligence though, you know, I, have you run into men who they get it, they're smart enough to get it, but they're not capable to deliver it or to break it down to the rest of the group. And therefore they find themselves as somewhat of an outcast because they can't connect because they, they don't know how to process to somebody who's below 115. You know, they're 140 up and they're, they're like, I don't know how to break this down. And you're, you're cool, you're smart and you want to help, but you're struggling. And I've, I've seen that a lot or I've seen that with men who are super smart and they're not suffering from analysis paralysis. They, they, they're doing things, but they just can't relate to the fellow men. And that is their struggle that the other guys don't ever see. Yeah, I think I had that when I was a kid, for sure. Um, when I was in uh, kindergarten, I had a assessment for my IQ and they assessed it as a roughly 168, uh, which is really, really on the high end. I did suffer a head injury that brought it down into the 140s um, when I was later on as a kid. But I, I would go to school. I was raised around older people who I was the first kid of my generation. So I was raised around older people who spoke seven languages and were all super intelligent and would sit there talking about history and philosophy all the time. And I'd go to school and I'd be talking to the kids at school and they didn't understand what I was saying because the vocabulary was, you know, way older than what they were. And they, they thought I was some sort of a freak, you know, what language are you speaking? And my minister training, which actually started very young because that was the path my parents wanted me on. They wanted me to become a minister. Uh, the minister training was designed to help me break down the complex concepts of Christianity can have some very complex concepts in there to break that down and to teach people of all sorts. So right from the highest intelligence down, down to people who were nearly non-functional. And that training really helped me to understand how to speak to common people, to have patience with them, uh, to one of the good things about people whose IQ is not as high is they usually live more in their body and less in their head. And so if you can teach them physically, you can teach them things. You have to use, you can see Jesus Christ did this. There was a lot of physical examples. He would talk in an analogy. He would use examples of things that were physical and everyday and happened to people normally. And I think that this is the way we need to reach people who may not be at our level. If we're always talking in big words and philosophy, we're only going to reach people who are at our level. And those people who are at our level, uh, there's not a lot to teach them often. They already know a lot of the things we know. And so it's, unless we're really developing something new, it limits our impact on the world. If you look at the IQ bell curve, it's, it's a real sharp curve. There's not that many people after about 125. And if we can't reach people lower than that, we can't reach down to average people, you know, 90 and up. Our ability to influence and improve the world is almost non-existent. And so we have to learn how to do that. And it really is a skill to learn how to speak to all people, to learn to speak to people in their language. I had an asterisk near that note to make sure I asked you that, because I know a lot of men who are intelligent, above average, they think it's the other person's problem. Well, it's not my fault you don't get it. Well, it is. If you're the person who can't relay the information, you're going to find yourself less and less connected to those men. So it is your problem. You do have to find a way. It's similar to what you were saying from the top guys, be able to relate to them and explain it all the way to just about functional. If you're going to lead, you know, I saw this in the military, some guys come in and they're 
their ASVAB score has just got them in. Some guys killed the ASVAB. You have to leave both. You got to find a way to connect yeah. with both and inspire both. Yeah. And there, you know, if we always go into everything with the expectation that everything is our fault and not in a way of, oh, I feel guilty and I'm, I'm paralyzed by guilt, but everything is up to me. I, I have to do whatever I can to make this work and then, you know, be comfortable with it if it doesn't, but you have to do everything you can. Then we don't end up with that situation. The reality is, is if you're incredibly intelligent, you can speak down. But if you're not very intelligent, you can't understand up. It's not possible. And so we have to conform in our speech to a certain extent and in our writing to those who can't conform to us. You know, the, th the fact is, is if good men like you and I aren't talking to the masses and encouraging them and influencing them in positive directions, there are evil smart people out there who can talk to them and will mobilize them and will organize them and will turn them against, uh, against us and against the things that we appreciate and that we believe in. And so it is, this is a struggle for the future of civilization and the people in the middle matter. They're very, very important to what happens in society, especially when we live in a democracy. You know, it doesn't matter if you have a 160 IQ or a 60 IQ, you can still vote. We have to find ways to educate and teach and train and help people to mature no matter where they fall in the spectrum. I really like that answer. And that sense of, well, it's your fault. You know, you're the problem, but you're also the solution. It's an empowering statement. Sometimes it gets twisted to, well, woe is me. But no, I, I view that to be powerful. So I appreciate yes. that. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the third one of the, the seven is mindfulness. Um, this, is a, this is a problem actually affects, I find affects more intelligent people. Uh, they, they often tend to have a lower level of mindfulness in some ways. And the reason is, is there's so many programs running in the back of their head because they're so intelligent, they notice so many things happening. They're making so many connections constantly that they're not paying attention to their body, for example. They're not paying attention to how they feel about things, to gut instincts, to relationships around them. And so their level of mindfulness, their level of perception about what's close to them diminishes as they're capable of perceiving what's far away. Now, there are people that can accurately predict things like politics two or three years ahead, and they're pretty good at it. And then you look at their own personal life and they can't predict, you know, crazy people that enter into their life are crazy. They, they can't see it. They're blind to it because their vision is so far fixed on the future that they're not mindful of what's happening in the moment. And so improving our mindfulness is extremely important. Church used to play a part in that. We had to go to church. We had to sit down and we had to listen and pay attention and focus. Um, there was a tradition and a way of doing things at church. Uh, it would be the same if you were a young man and you went with your father to work. You know, you, kids used to go to work with their dad at seven years old out in the field, and it was dangerous. There's plenty of things that could kill you. Plowing with a horse, you know, you slip and fall and the plow goes over you. Uh, you're going to get an infection and end up dying. So we had to keep our mind on the game, on what we were doing right now. We couldn't think about the long future. We had to focus on what we were doing. And there is a time to think about the future and plan. That's probably 10% of our time, 90% of our time. We got to focus on the job. We got to get done right now. We got to be focused. We got to get things done. We have to notice what's happening in our immediate vicinity and act on it. 
Um, anyone who teaches self-defense, they, they usually say the number one thing. People say, what kind of weapon should I carry? What should martial arts should I learn? And the first thing they tell them is the first thing you need to do is be aware of your surroundings. You know, that's the number one thing to be safe. Pay attention to what's happening around. Well, be mindful of what's around you. So our level of mindfulness is trainable. You know, we, we can be a low level of mindfulness, but we can train it. And in fact, that's a big part of what the course is about is training your mindfulness. Would you say that this is the, the category of the limitation where most nice guys find themselves? As I was reading this, I was thinking, and the reason I ask is I, I feel as though these men are so mindful as to making others happy. They're so hyper aware of the happiness and hmm. acceptance of others that this is where they're always turning into that, that quote unquote nice guy. They want to be the, yeah, the right they're, they're not mindful of themselves. They're not mindful of their own needs. Yep. And, you know, we, we, have, we have an ever-expanding circle that comes out from us of where we can influence. We have the most influence over our own inner self. We have a second level of influence over our outer self. You know, we can change our appearance by exercise and diet, but we can, even if we're in a wheelchair, we can change what's going on inside. There, there's nobody that can stop us from changing what's happening inside our mind. Uh, so that it expands from the outside. Now, what'll happen is a lot of, and I think it's a problem with a lot of nice guys, they're focused on other people and helping other people because looking inside is scary. They're not in touch with their inner beast, with the, the, the dangerous masculinity, which is in all men, which is necessary. You know, it's necessary for us to protect our family. We have to have that. They end up being nice because they don't look inside themselves and see who they really are. Also, they don't look inside themselves and see their defects because that's scary. So I'm going to focus on everybody else. And that, that is a big part of the nice guy syndrome. They're, they're full of their own flaws and imperfections, which they completely don't notice because they were nice. It should be okay. And that's not how reality works. In the group, do you, or during your testing, did you find a lot of men like, oh man, like when this came up and they started looking inside and the whole group was like, oh man, like, yeah, we get, we got to address, even though you want to look over it, we got to go inside and address that point right there. Is that something that came yeah, up frequently I, I, in the group? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that happens when you're looking at your internal programming, so we're all programmed and it doesn't matter how free you think your mind is, we're all programmed. That's the way the human mind works. And the question is, is who programmed us? Did, did we program ourselves? Are we in charge of that programming or are we um, a victim of someone else's programming, in which case we have to excise that? And did the people that program us have our best intentions at heart? So if we were raised well, our parents gave us a lot of good programs, but a lot of people weren't. And a lot of people, the, the negative programs they got have defensive programs built in. And I've had arguments with people who aren't even alive through their son or daughter. And I'm trying to help the son or daughter who's you know, my age, who's, who's in their 30s or 40s. And I'm trying to help them. I'm like, I'm arguing with your mother right now. I, I'm telling you the truth about women. And I'm arguing with your mother, not you, because I know you'd, you wouldn't think this way if you think about it long enough. And so they imprint into their kids these negative programs and all the defensive measures around it. And when you're looking inside at that, uh, it will, it will self-attack. And you'll see this most commonly in telling a person that they need to take better care of themselves. And then they're not doing it. And you ask, do you love yourself? Do you actually have positive emotions about who you are as a person? And they say, no, what, what emotions do you have? Well, I have uh, disgust and I have hatred. And well, of course, if you have those feelings about yourself, 
which is pretty common amongst men, then you're not going to put effort into taking care of yourself. You're not going to put effort into becoming a better man if you think that you're not worth it. And that somebody put that in there. Someone put that idea in their head. That's not an, an idea kids are born with. Um, and that is often a defensive mechanism against self-improvement. And every time men try to improve themselves, they come up with that. And this is part of the reason why I don't just give this information away. It is dangerous for you to mess with your internal programming without someone to help guide you through it. You end up coming across all kinds of old demons. I've had people remember childhood traumas and abuses and all kinds of stuff that they didn't remember before. And they're digging down and they're like, why do I have this problem? And they figure it out. Now, if you go through the whole process, you come out the other side stronger and those things don't, can't bother you anymore. But during the healing process, it's painful and it's dangerous. And you're taking programming out of your mind, leaves a gap there. And what fills that gap, you have to be careful what you fill the gap with. So we intentionally have people overwrite programming. So they're you know, programming about how they should behave in a certain circumstance. I have a client now, he hasn't gone through this course, but he was telling me that he's having a hard time with his, his um, fiance because every time they have any disagreement, he's been so programmed by certain red pill um, authors that he sees that argument as her attacking and manipulating him, which it's not. She's just being a woman. You know, she's doing what a woman does. They are naturally more neurotic and whatnot. And he says, I'm, I've been hypersensitized to manipulative females, and I can't even see my own fiance who's not manipulating me as not being one of them. And so that's a programming he got from reading certain books and paying deep, deep attention to certain ideas that are not complete, that don't include, you know, they're good for protecting you against bad women, but they're not good for helping you inter interact with good women. And so now he's having to reprogram himself. He's having to remember again how to interact with a good woman that he can trust. So it's when you're going through that process, it can be really painful. And if you don't have help to go through it, you can end up making things worse. That is some really powerful stuff right there. You know, that breakdown, not, not to make it any, any mm -hmm. super level, but it reminded me of that movie Inception. It's like somebody mm -hmm. went in and put a thought in your head. You know, and it's not yours. Somebody put that there and there's layers to it. And that, well. <laughs> Have you ever talked to someone that was in a cult before? I don't like actively so. in a cult. No. Okay. So if you talk to someone who's in an active cult and they will tell you what they believe and it's completely ridiculous. Like it's, you hear it and you're like, how can any intelligent person believe this? They believe it with all their heart. And if you do anything to, counteract that or counterdict that or even start showing them actual proof it's not true you know the masks don't work social distancing isn't helping whatever it happens to be that's kind of a cult right now that people have been indicted into or um, indoctrinated into they'll attack you that's the defensive mechanism now even if they question it themselves they'll attack themselves as well so it is very much like inception people can plant ideas in your head uh, the younger you are, the easier it is. The lower your agency, the easier it is. And my job is to help you examine what's been planted in your head. Like I go with you and we deep dive down, down layer after layer, find out where that information was planted. You look at that and say, do you want this in your head? And you say no. And just like in Inception, there are people will, you know, the mind's defensive structures will attack you. 
and you got to get that out and you got to replace it with something that neutralizes the situation. And it's, yeah, it's difficult work. It's self-work. And I think it's at a level of self-work that you don't find anywhere else. And honestly, I mean, I think that everyone, I hope anybody listening to this, you know, checks the program out and goes through because I think everyone should be doing that deep work and what's really yours. And what's that little virus that's just kind of sitting there with that little bomb that's just waiting to go off that some terrorist dropped in a bag. Yep, absolutely. And we've, we've been undergoing about 200 years of undermining to our agency before the industrial revolution, um, especially Europeans, we lived in a mineral system and you were basically an independent tenant farmer and you had to be responsible for yourself. And a very high level of agency was needed to survive in that world. You had to plant when you had to plant, didn't matter what the weather was or how you felt. Um, you had to get done what you had to get done or you starved. So the low agency people were literally starved. They were taken out of the gene pool. And over time, we developed this culture where the elites recognized that it was better to have people of high agency under them. They committed less crimes. They worked harder. They were more productive. Then we hit the industrial revolution and we were taken out of this complex farming environment where we had a lot of different tasks to do and it took a lot of skill and they wanted us to go to a factory where we pulled a lever all day. And now our agency was a problem because we'd start going, this is really boring. I hate this. And we'd start talking to our other high agency friends and we'd be like, let's federate together and go start our own factory. And so the rich were realizing that these high agency people could compete with them in a world where uh, there was more free enterprise. And so they've been taking 200 years undermining our agency to keep us more like more like farm animals. It's a lot of money in farming humans. And they want to keep us more like farm animals and less like humans. And so we can fight back against that. You know, the American Revolution was high agency men federating together, fighting for their sovereignty. And through that, they were able then to grant each other and everyone else rights. Right now, we're losing our rights. Why? Because we have less men of agency. They're less likely to federate together and they're less likely to fight for their own sovereignty. And the only counter to that is to start with agency because sovereignty and rights are a byproduct of having agency. They're an emergent property from a group of people that have high agency. So what we're doing is actually counteracting the last 200 years of undermining that we've had as a civilization right at the root. You know, there's lots of people that like to blame other groups. Oh, this group's responsible for the fall of Western civilization. Oh, it's, it's, it's women. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. No, no. It's men not developing their agency, not federating together. That means cooperating and working in brotherhoods and being unwilling to fight for their sovereignty. And once we fix that at the root again, we're going to notice our, our rights start returning again because we're able to enforce those rights, rights that don't have enforcement behind them. The constitution is only as good as the men that enforce it. It's only as powerful as that. And that's what we have to return to is high men of high agency enforcing their own rights. As I was reading and you, you brought up, you know, high agency men are dangerous and that's why the powers that be don't, don't like them. They're not falling in line. The way you say it. And, and for anybody that reads it, they're going to feel this too. There's, there's like a degree of difference between everybody else, the way they're saying it. And when I read that, it really, it plucked a chord because I was like, I never thought about it in that light. You know, my sense of wanting to do it my way, of course, they're not going to like that. 
because that puts me outside the box and inside the box, they can control what's happening in the box, but that's outside the box going free range. Hey, you got to get back over here. It's like a puppy that gets away. You want your puppy that you can control. The puppy runs away though. Oh, well now he's no longer your dog. Now he's out in the wild. That's I really like the way that you, you worded that. And I think a lot of men, I mean, I, at least for myself, that really struck a chord as to why I live the way I live. And I think a lot of men are going to find interest in this program and in this book because it, there's there's something masculine to that. Like, I will do it. I'm responsible. I'm the man. I will lead. You know, I will take the power. And to to have that sense of agency, to have that fuel within be somewhat validated through through the writing, through the program, that that's a good thing. The only people telling you Absolutely. that's a bad thing are those who try to control. I think that's going to be liberating. Yeah. And, and I, I will federate or cooperate with other men to accomplish tasks that are beyond me, but I will do that of my own free will. I'm not a thrall who will be impressed into service to some sort of an elite. And right now, most people have chosen to be thralls. They're, they're basically slaves. They've said, I don't want any agency. Tell me what kind of mask I should wear. Tell me when I'm allowed to go out of my house. Tell me when I can travel. Con control every aspect of my life as long as I'm safe and I don't have to think a lot. Uh, I'm okay with it. And so, of course, we're going to lose our rights. There's a high level of demand for bigger and bigger government. And <clears throat> the counter to that is to demand more and more freedom and sovereignty. And we have to, and it has to be a demand. We, we can't ask for it. If you're asking, could you please give me some rights and freedoms? Uh, you're not sovereign and you don't have agency. You know, that this is children ask, can I stay up an extra hour before bed? You know, right now we're saying, can, can I go to my grandma's house um, and, and see her when the lockdown's on? No, sorry, you can't do that. Can I, can I go to church? No, you can't do that. And we're tolerating people telling us what we can and cannot do on what is basically our, our basic freedoms and our basic human rights. You know, if, if this had happened to our ancestors 200, 250 years ago, th they'd be like, screw it, I'm going anyway. And if you got in their way, I mean, they were all armed and they were totally willing to fight for their own sovereignty. They'd rather die than be slaves. And today it's the other way around. People would rather be slaves than have to think. And we have to counteract that and we can only counteract it in our own mind. And then hopefully that ripples out to other men. I hope so as well. My, my Facebook, I've been getting slammed, but I'm, I'm standing that ground on the, the anti-mask campaign. Yeah, in your book, I, agree with you. I, I have to think this is intentional, but you go from mindfulness to physical. So you snap people yeah. out of their head and right onto their body. Could we dive into yeah, the physical absolutely. limitations and how those are used? Yeah, we have, we have physical limitations. And that isn't just like our, our own physicality itself. We are located physically in only one place. Uh, we, we don't have omniscient, omniscience. No. Yes, omniscience. That means being everywhere. We don't have omniscience. So we can want to accomplish certain things, but they can be beyond our ability. We only live a certain period of time. We can want to build or create things, and it's not possible for us physically to do it. And so understanding that limitation was extremely important, for example, in the building of the great cathedrals of Europe. Some of these cathedrals took 700 years. You know, these are it's like 30, 40 generations to build it. And those high agency men who launched these projects, they had to think, how is my great, 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 you know, 35 generations later, grandson going to lay that last brick? And they had to create structures that enabled projects that were beyond their ability to be created. How do you do things that are beyond the ability of a man? How do you do that? You have to 
create something that allows that to happen. And this all starts with one man. Everything that's ever been done in history starts with a single man saying that thing should be done. And then he builds around him a group of men who then build a structure. And then that thing starts to happen. We see, you know, the, the rise of Rome. It was, well, it was two brothers in this case. And between the two of them, they said, hey, let's create something here. Now, they didn't understand what they were going to create in the long term. You know, they were making very much a day-by-day -day decision of, of survival in many cases. What, what those two men started became the longest-lived empire and you know, one of the longest-lived empires in human history and a major impact on our, even our current world. So the things that we as men are doing, when we understand those physical limitations and we plan for them, a lot of guys like, I'm just one guy. How can I do whatever it is? You know, I, very simple example. But what if the government becomes full on totalitarian? I mean, they have tanks and bombs and guns and airplanes. And what can we do? A bunch of Afghani goat herders don't ask that question. <laughs> they just go out and do. They don't have any fear. They go out and they do what they do. And they don't worry about that because they understand that there are physical limitations, but they also understand they're not alone. And I think that's something we, when you understand your limitations, you understand how to compensate for them. You understand what you need to do to add on to that. So for us, that's having children is a big part of that. Children are a way to extend our projects out into the future. And, you know, maybe our kids aren't the ones who extend our projects. Maybe it's people we mentor. Uh, you know, I think it's important to find good places for men who aren't having children and women who aren't having children for one reason or another. Maybe they're not capable of, of having kids. Um, there needs to be ways for them as well, honored places in society for such people so that they don't turn against society and ways for them to have societal upbuilding projects that they can project out into the future. I like the way you chose the the goat herder, you know, all, all the way in the middle of the desert somewhere. He doesn't ask that question. They just do. Yep. You know, and we all have our limitations, you know, between, well, I want a family and I want to create my empire or, or I want to run a production business or whatever. Well, you've got to find a good wife. You got to find a good someone who can handle those kids while you do this thing. That's an intentional decision that allows you to be in two places. You can be gone and the extension of you can be raising the children. You know, uh, you and I have both spoken at the 21 convention. You know, we, we are limited what we could do, but we know a guy who is running a production system. You know, he's putting together events in the middle of total chaos. All right, that's somebody I will align with. I will allow him to do that work and I can show up and appear and give my, my presence to that stage. You know, and you've done the same. It's, it's not just, or it, from my reading, it wasn't just literally my physical, but like, how can I connect with others in the real world to get real work done. Similar to you, you know, rallying around the government is starting to take over a group of five dudes. I mean, look at the Revolutionary War. Some colonialists, hey, go get together, rise up. They've got more everything, but you've got fire. You've got that, that spark in the soul. You've got the cause and the, the rally cry. You know, maybe that might be enough and it turned out to be enough. One of the very um, initial parts of the Revolutionary War was early on when uh, the British soldiers were marching to collect the guns and they were being followed by a group of patriots. And the group included boys from about 13 years old all the way up to men in their 80s. And they, they're armed and they're following soldiers whose orders are do this thing no matter what. You know, they were free to fire back. And it did turn into a firefight. And can you imagine, you know, 
13 year old boys, they were willing to go out with their dad and their grandpa and their great grandpa and go out and fight an entire multiple generations of a family would get in on the same project. You know, half the time people can't get their kids to eat dinner with them nowadays. So there's, there's a lot to be said, high agency men, um, they attract other high agency men. And when you have a good project, when you have a good goal, you will tend to find these other high agency men have a very similar goal because we tend to get aligned in very similar ways. And that is because we seek our own sovereignty. We seek freedom. We seek independence. And we also seek security for our women and our children. And in order to have that, we have to ally with other men. We have to work with other men. And it enables us to do things that it that is impossible for a single man to do. And this is extremely important in understanding how we can multiply our agency. What's interesting, and I look forward to sort of hearing your description of this, but the next one is instrumental limitations. And the way I looked at it was technology. And as you break it down, do you believe that the instruments we have now have removed the, the need for proximity? Like right now, I believe you're in Portugal, correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I'm, yes. I'm in Rhode Island. And here we are face-to-face having this discussion. You know, it's sort of flattened the world, if you will. We're able, these, these instruments they've pretty much changed the game to where now men can connect where before you and I probably would not have ever crossed paths had it not been social media, had it not been, you know, the internet, if you will. So how has that played, you know, into the, I guess the detriment or growth of these high agency men compared to these low agency men. So it's had a a positive and negative effect. The positive effect is it's very easy online to find people that are closely aligned with your thinking. And, and that's good because we enjoy people who are as similar to us as possible. Uh, you know, we, we say opposites attract. That's true. And it's like men and women, you know, the ma- super masculine man and the super feminine woman. But when it comes to having peer friends, we like people who are fairly aligned with us, who have the same ideas about how to solve problems as us, who have the same moral standards, uh, the same um, way of resolving problems, for example. And we can find that very easily online. The problem is, is that if things get bad, those people are a world away from us and it's impossible for them to come and help us. One of the questions I ask men in early coaching sessions, usually on the first one, I ask them, do you have any friends? And they'll say, oh yeah, I got three or four friends or whatever. And I'll say, if the lights went out and there was a mob at your door and you like cell phone called your friend and you said, I need you to show up armed, heavy, like hurry up. Do you have any friend that could get there? And like, oh no, I don't have anybody like that because they're, they're either, they wouldn't come or they're way too far away. And I said, then you don't really have friends. Like internet friends are friends, but it's not the same as when they're living, you know, two, two miles down the road or in, or in a community, you know, here I live in Europe, it's mostly tiny communities in Portugal, lots and lots of small communities where there's 500, 2000 people in the community. And then another one right beside it. Uh, Even the neighborhoods are very, very communal. They're designed inward facing so that people spend time with each other. There's usually a park in the center and then people go to the park and their kids meet and they, they grow up as part of a community. And I think that this is extremely important and we're really missing out on it. It's a big difference to be in handshaking distance to a man. The kind of respect you gain from that, you know, all, all the shit talking that happens online doesn't happen when you're face to face with men because someone's going to get punched. All of a sudden, everyone's more respectful. 
which means the relationships can become real and true. And we see each other's faces and we see who they are. We see their families. And this level of intimacy is being lost right now. Um, you know, it's absolutely important that men seek out fraternities that they can physically get in contact with, that they can, even if it's once a month or once every three months, that you get physically together with other men and you spend time with them. And you, better is that you do something. Get together and do something, something challenging. That really brings out what a man is. And with, with these technical limitations, it's, you know, there are things we can access information now that we couldn't access a few years ago. So we look at, say, the boomers and we say, oh, the boomers ruined the world. This is part of the problem of blaming other people for ruining the world. The boomers ruined the world. Yeah, the boomers, the only information they had available to them was designed by people trying to undermine their agency. Here, take some drugs. Here, uh, you know, random sex. Oh, yeah, forget about all the institutions that made the West great. You don't need those anymore. You know, uh, they had communism rammed down their throat. So they thought that being communist light, like socialist, was an improvement. You know, oh, we're, we're not all the way communist. We're only socialist. And so we blame them for, you know, a lot of things they legitimately deserve blame for. However, they were under a different situation. Less. There was no internet where they could go and look at the world. There was no you know, as outlandish as he is, there was no Alex Jones that they could go and say, hey, maybe, maybe, maybe the chemicals are making the frogs gay. You know, they, they, they couldn't, they couldn't check this stuff. They, they weren't even encouraged to ask the question, is what I see on the news real? If you watch CNN right now, you think that Biden already won the election. It's, it's complete absurdity. But this is what they were subjected to. So we have this huge opportunity to get freedom that our ancestors didn't have through freedom of information that we have. Despite all of the attempts to, to suppress it, it's out there. You brought up the, the need for physical contact and proximity. You know, I, I call that consummating the friendship. You know, mm -hmm. I tell the guys in FOE, if, if we've not met, you know, you've got 99, like you and I, we've not met. We're, we're 98, 99% there. I read your work. I see your videos. We're talking right now. We're almost there. But until we shake hands, then it's like, all right, I know Noah. You know Zach. Yeah. Until then, there's that degree of separation. And it's incredibly important. You know, inside the fraternity itself. So I, I run the FOE. These men, they, I love what we're doing. We got these video calls. We're doing these challenges. We're improving money, sex, uh, personal self-respect. All these things are improving. And then they go to a meetup and they meet the men. They're like, oh, wow. That was the power. All these other things was gone to the side. That meetup changed everything. And that's their their pivoting point to be like, no, this is real. You know, and then they do and they replicate in their own life. I, I can't stress it enough to anybody that's listening that's not meeting up with people, that's not staying in contact with friends, go do something. It changes everything, especially even if it's an online friend. Hey, let's meet up for coffee. You live down, you know, a, a town away. We've been talking for years on or playing a, a video game or whatever for years. Let's meet up for coffee. It will change everything. Yeah, it doesn't have to be complex. It can just be coffee. And you know that the energy that gives you, we're we're not made to be uh, separated. And there is a physical component to meeting people. Um, we we exchange pheromones, and it's people think of that with dating, but actually that comes even to trust. Sometimes you meet a guy face to face, and you're like, I don't trust that guy. There's something off about him somehow he's sending signals that there's something you can't trust. Or maybe you're like, oh, I meet this guy. Yeah, this guy's real. I, I trust this guy. He's a real 
a real man. And this happens to be a lot of small unconscious signals and they're blunted the farther apart we are. So video blunts it a little bit. Audio only blunts it more. Text almost completely erases that context. And without meeting people in context, it's very hard to get to know them. And you know this from the military that they make men do things. Sometimes they're, they have nothing to do with the mission. You just make them do stuff together because that makes them bond. That makes them join together. And it could be something silly like, you know, everybody's got to polish their boots with, uh, you know, with, with spit shine their boots with a, a toothbrush type thing because you want them to go through an experience together and you understand how that binds them together. <clears throat> excuse me, hiccup. binds them together and makes them into a cohesive unit. For men to cooperate on big projects, uh, it's necessary to meet together. And they've been, COVID has really put a, a stop to this to a large extent. And I think that a lot of people are enjoying working from home, but we're getting about to the point where people want to get back together again. I think we saw that in 21 convention a few weeks ago, how energized you guys were after coming out of that. I was really sad that I couldn't travel due to the travel restrictions because that you come back from that and you're on fire for months. It just gives you that kind of energy to go. And we really need that. However, we have to get it, even if it's not permitted where we live, do it clandestinely. I know all kinds of jujitsu groups and others that will meet secretly. Uh, they'll meet in some guy's basement. They'll get together. They do what they have to do to maintain friendships and to maintain their, their brotherhood. And this is extremely important. Um, we, we are, we are a pack animal and we need to run with the pack. I completely agree. You know, that is, that is, uh, it's a, a battle cry of my own that I've been a personal message I've been pushing is like, look, it's great to do this. I, I really enjoy doing this. You know, like I said, creating content with other guys like yourself, but at the end of the day, 21 con, uh, FOE meetups, you know, I meet up with a few of the regional guys up here, you know, that's, that's where it's at. That's where I get my true satisfaction. And while I enjoy everything else, that is where the the animal inside me, the primal connection comes out. And it's like, this is real. This is what my soul needs. And then from here, I can carry it for, even if it's just once a month, as you said, it doesn't have to be a daily thing, but you also don't need to wait for permission to come from the government to allow you to go do this. So it shouldn't yep. be a six month thing either. This is not a semi-annual event we're talking about. It's whatever you need at whatever frequency you need. Absolutely. So next limitation, we're looking at, resources yeah this is a huge one um we often see for example they'll talk about uh, minority communities so well they'll, they'll talk about specifically a black community and say that there's an obesity epidemic because they don't have money to buy healthy food and the the reality is is that there there is something to be said for that but that's saying that because you have a resource limitation you can't have control of your own body and now we know that that's not true because we can see there are some poor people in that community will still be healthy and fit. What are they doing differently? They have the same resources, you know? And so the issue is, is that you notice you have a resource limitation. You need to find ways around that resource limit limitation to still accomplish your goal. If, if you're poor and you want to accomplish something, how do you do it? Let's say you're poor. You want to go to go to college. You want to take a degree. Maybe you end up instead going and looking at the books that were going to be in that course anyway. You go and take those books out from the library and you read them and you get the equivalent of the degree. You end up working in the field and you'll probably find out you didn't actually need the degree. You just needed the information. You know, that this is one of the advantages in working in IT. People who work in IT, 
they don't care if you have a degree, they care that you can do the job. And so we have a lot of opportunities right now to do things for little to no cost. You can start a business for almost nothing. Most businesses that I've started have literally been, I just come up with a name, I start the business, I launch it. If I make money, after a few months, I'll go register the business. I'm not going to spend anything on it until I have an idea that it's a viable concept. And then I'm like, okay, now I'm going to spend money on it. And then it grows. And that's, you know, people who are successful, even in large scale, they will often start stuff on a shoestring budget because they don't want to throw money at something until they have an idea whether the public is interested or not. And there's a lot of things that we can do with very little money. Um, you know, my, my son, he keeps begging me to get him a job. And so I bought him a carving kit and a, got, we went and collected a bunch of sticks from around the neighborhood and he's going to start carving Christmas decorations and then selling them online. And uh, this is, you know, you don't need a lot of money to get to accomplish your goals. What you need to do is you need to use the other things you have to compensate for your lack of money. Now inside this community, I, I want to say from my interpretation, low agency individuals will talk about the problem. High agency individuals will work towards the solution, which are yes. two totally different perspectives on the same problem. Is, is that when you hit this phase, is this how you guys address that? Is like, look, you, I see, and you are totally correct in that there is this issue, but what are we going to do about it? Is that sort of the angle you take on helping them shift, you know, the lens in which they're viewing the world? Yeah, a lot of people will say, I don't make enough money at my job. And okay, so, you know, I don't make enough money at my job is the problem. We understand that's good to identify the problem. We don't need to keep talking about the problem anymore. You, your options are a different job, negotiate for a raise or a side gig. Those are basically your three options, unless you can figure something, something beyond that. That's generally what it is. And so most of the men that start coaching with me within six months, they have between a 30 and 50% increase in income. Most of them uh, by negotiating for a better pay with their, with their boss. Most people are underpaid. Uh, most people who are productive are underpaid and most people who are unproductive are overpaid. So if you're a productive person, uh, you, you learn how to have agency. This, the differences that you're going to get from going through the course will be noticeable to other people. Uh, one of my clients, his, um, the people he worked with like, came up to him and said, you seem a lot more confident and like, you're really taking charge of things. And one of the women said to him, this is in uh, Southern Europe. So people can say this without getting problems with HR. They said, you seem much more masculine. And uh, he, that was the best, uh, best compliment for him ever. And the boss noticed uh, his, his boss noticed and took him under his wing and put him into management and is training him for that. And this was a huge help for him. Um, even with COVID coming, they're still giving him more and more responsibilities. And so eventually that turns into more pay. You take more responsibilities, you get more pay. I can walk you through that process. Frankly, your dad should have told you that. Like all of this stuff is stuff your dad should have taught you, but he didn't because he didn't know it because his dad didn't teach him because his dad didn't teach him. Somewhere along the line, there was a breakdown there um, where kids stopped learning these essential skills from their parents. How do you negotiate for a raise? How do you convince your boss to pay you more money? How do you get a job even? You know, people don't know nowadays. They send resumes out. Never get a job through resumes. You get a job through people you know. That's where you get jobs from. But how do you work that contact network? You know, how do you do that kind of stuff? 
understanding your resource limitations. You may not have money, but you got something, you got time. You've got energy. If you're young, that's probably what you got is time and energy and no money. Uh, if you're a little older, you might not have so much time and energy or money, but you've got contacts. You've been around for 20 years. You know people. Start working that network. Start building it up. Use that network. Maybe you don't use the network to get a job. Maybe you become the nexus of information transfer in your industry. You know, you start connecting people that need each other together. And that is your job now. You find out how to make money off the middle of that. Um, this is taking a look at what you've got because <clears throat> resources aren't just money. Resources are anything you have that has value that you can turn into value and figuring out how to get value out of it. Um, a lot of times it's just what you know. You know, you know things or know people. How do you make money out of that? And that's what we, we're going to teach you how to do that in the course as well. I can't, I wish I could be a fly on the wall for all of those, because I think that's, that's gotta be one of the most empowering moments when you see that click in their mind. You know, yep. I, I see a lot of people, it really trips them out when they come to me and I acknowledge their excuses because they're so used to people saying, well, you know, your, your parents are alcoholics. Well, that's no excuse for you to be an alcoholic. Your parents are poor. That's no, ex it is an excuse. It's a great excuse, but we're just not going to take it. <laughs> so they're like, oh, wow. Like, yes, I acknowledge you do have a justification for your issue. But that's where that ends with my connection to you. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, Corona did happen. That's a good excuse for you to start feeling a little isolated, a little more depressed because you're alone. How are we going to fix it? You know, identify the problem. And like you said, don't stay there. Keep going. Take the next step on the next path. What's the solution? And I think, uh, honestly, as, as somebody who works with, you know, mentoring and coaching others, for myself, that is the most satisfying. I can only imagine seeing it in the group scale, that same like, oh, it's almost like you give them permission to succeed in spite of, yeah. you know, the, the poverty cycle that's been going on in their, their, their family for generations. Oh, you can break it though. Like, yes. Oh, wow. You mean I'm allowed to not be poor? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there, you know, there's reasons why people are poor. Let's figure what those are and let's work around them. You know, um, even with coronavirus, a lot of people say, oh, this is impacting my ability to socialize. And, and I go, this is helping my ability to socialize. I go to the park with my son and I don't have to waste my time talking to random people. I just look for the ones that aren't wearing masks. You know, I have, I'm not going to talk to a person who's wearing a mask. That's not it. I mean, first of all, they don't want to get close enough to have a proper conversation. And second of all, that's probably they're, they're identifying themselves. They're saying we're non-mask tribe and we're mask tribe. And this helps me to figure out who are the low neuroticism people who feel in control of their life. They don't need to wear a mask to feel in control. Um, you know, they're, they're not sheep following orders. That's the kind of people I want to hang around. That's the kind of people I want to get to know. So it's actually helped my, me to socialize and I can very quickly come to, I, I come up to them and we share something in common. We're both not wearing masks. What kind of, it's the best opener possible. You know, if, if I was single, it'd be like, I'd, I'd go to the girls that weren't wearing masks and I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I see you're not wearing a mask. Good job. That's brave. That's, that's good. Yeah. I'm glad that you're not, uh, I'm with you. because <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and what happens is, is they also see that with you too. They're people are judging you based on everything, how you dress, what you eat, uh, how you look, how you move around, um, everything that you do. I, you know, I have a large beard. You can't have this beard and work at a bank. The beard is a signal that I'm my own man because I work at a job where nobody can tell me I have to cut my beard so that my mask fits properly. So I can, you know, get along with the Corona regulations at my job. 
it's a signal that I'm independent. And everything we do is a signal of something. And Corona has helped to clarify a lot of those signals. Um, a lot of people have said they've lost half their Facebook friends because of Corona, because they'll say, yeah, masks are stupid and their friends are all panicky about they got to wear a mask. And I, you didn't lose half your friends. You kept your friends. You lost all the people you didn't really want to be friends with. They, they filtered out of their life, your life. You're better to have less of those people in your life than more of them. Gives you space now to make new friends with people who don't wear masks. And so we, people like you and I, we tend to look at, we're very motivated by opportunity. What can I get from this? How can I use this to my advantage? But most people are very motivated by loss or potential loss. What can I do to avoid loss? So they come from a fear background. How do you protect yourself against loss? Because they don't have confidence in their ability to deal with crisis in such a way to come out on top. You know, we, we have a conflict with a friend. We look at this as an opportunity to strengthen our relationship with that friend. A lot of people look at that as, oh my goodness, a conflict, I'm going to lose my friend. Because they're not confident in their ability to negotiate the conflict successfully and peacefully with their friend. And so this is, this is a very different ways of looking at things. And I think we're seeing this bifurcation of society where there's going to be the people who look at things in very positive pro-social ways, growing and succeeding and having kids and finding each other and marrying. And there's going to be a whole load of people that go off to be hermits and literally genetically and in every other way disappear from society. And I have a feeling it's going to be a good thing in the long run. The, the gap between the have I'm calling it the haves and have nots. You know, we can call it whatever you want, you know, the connected, the unconnected, you know, whatever, the hermits and not, you know, it, it's it's definitely a, a sharp widening. And it's been very interesting to me as someone, so I'm engaged through youth sports with my children. And I, I kind of see the parents, we're, we're friends on Facebook, but like the connection is the kids. You know, I don't really know them that well. They don't know me that well, but we, we know each other well enough to to connect that way. And I see them starting to get that, like that rally cry inside them. Or they're like, this is ridiculous. And I'm like, yes, welcome to the dark side. Come on over. You know, it's good over here. Where before they were, they were a little more reserved, trying to comply. And I've just never been that guy. So from the outside looking in, I'm watching these people wake up to it. And there are a few, you know, I, I'm going to call it lost. You know, they've, they've doubled down on the mask and the face shield. But most people, I think, are coming out of this. And I never want to be that, that doom guy. Like, yeah, things get hard. And I'm going to acknowledge the reality. But at least from my perspective, I'm seeing a lot more people kind of see what's going on. And I guess in this the context of this discussion, they're finding that sense of agency. They're, they're, they're becoming a little more uh, a higher agent for themselves and taking responsibility for their freedom and what their life is going to look like moving forward. So it's good to see. Yeah, we, we actually uh, strong people become stronger under pressure and weak people break. And we are under a tremendous amount of pressure right now. So that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the strong people getting stronger and the weak people breaking. And we can't do much to help those weak people. We can get the people that are kind of in the middle and help bring them our way a bit. But most people, it's a personal decision they're going to make. What direction do they go in? You know, will they deal with their issues and go to the strong side? Or will they, will they give up, surrender, decide to become victims and go to the weak side? And it's completely a choice that's under their control even if they don't acknowledge it, it is under their control. It's up to them. It's within their agency to pick what side they're going to go to. I think in that, you know, it brings us to the seventh uh, limitation, which is the external limitations. And this is where things are happening exter to the exterior. You know, before we talk about how can we handle it, what is our perspective, uh, our mindfulness, our mental, our intellectual capability, 
well, there are going to be external limitations. Could you touch on that one? Yeah. So for example, I'm living in a country that about 35, 40 years ago, um, they had a revolution. And before that, they had a fascist dictatorship. And it was a very paternalistic dictatorship. And uh, the, the concept of the dictatorship ended up taking a lot of agency away from people. It said, you know, okay, we're going to tell you everything that's right and wrong. And you just follow these rules. You don't have to do a lot of thinking. And it was an idea of most uh, totalitarians. The idea is they want to engineer society according to their interests. And they do that by being incredibly strict. They, they don't allow you to have any agency because you might make a wrong decision. And so they have you under this tight control. And a lot of the rules they had were a good idea. You know, they, they closed the bars early so that men would go home to their wives. Great. Okay. Except the moment that all of that control goes away, now people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to rebel against that system by going and getting drunk every night with my friends. And now society completely collapses in the wake of allowing them to have freedom. People who've never experienced freedom for two or three generations have a real hard time dealing with it at first. They don't know what to do. Uh, you can't liberate a totalitarian group of a group of people that are run by a totalitarian government and expect them to be completely comfortable with freedom the day after. It takes time to develop that. And a lot of the world is under very controlling governments and even our own governments have become much more controlling the last few years. The entire tax system is designed to uh, manipulate us into a certain choices to buy houses, to, uh, to get married, which I, I agree with getting married, but not because of tax reasons. And these things are designed to control our behavior. So we do live in a system that attempts to undermine our agency and control our behavior. And we have to be cognizant of that. We have to understand that that's where we are and work within that and, and realize that a lot of people, they're going to go with what the system says they should do. And, you know, went to the, to the park with my son the other day and he says, well, there's a bunch of people here wearing masks. There's little kids like four years old wearing masks. And my son says, should I go tell them that coronavirus isn't stopped by the masks and that the masks are stupid, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, why do you think they're wearing the mask? Well, they're afraid and they're just doing it because they were told to. And I said, yes. And if you tell them that they're wrong, how are they, what are they going to do? Oh, they're just going to get their feelings hurt. And are they going to take the mask off? Probably not. So that you just be wasting your time, right? So understanding the system that we're in allows us to have a high level of agency within the limitations of the system. If you were born a slave, you may not have agency over your body. Someone else owns you. This is a terrible situation for people. And we have slaves all over the world, even now, but you can still be free in your mind. You can still choose to think and feel how you choose to think and feel, not under someone else's control. Now, if a slave can do that, we can do that as well. You know, um, a lot of people that I talked to, to about gaining agency, they said, you have to be one of the elites with tremendous amounts of power and connection and money in order to escape the system. And I said to them, you know, you, the system is mostly an illusion. The idea that the government can physically make you make us all do something is an illusion. If the masses of people decide not to do something, there is not enough enforcers to make us do it. It's impossible. We outnumber them. And we, I mean, many of them are part of us as well. They're part of the population as well. And the government's ability to enforce tyrannical rule is mostly an illusion. And if we recognize that, 
we can live a lot freer. I, I don't wear a mask when I go outside. It doesn't matter what the law is and nobody bothers me about it because I just walk down the street with complete confidence in what I'm doing. I've seen the cops stop, slow down, look at me, talk to each other, and then continue driving. I could tell they were just thinking about, hmm, should we let him know about the masks? And I'm sure they had a conversation and said, nah, don't worry about it, and just keep driving. <laughs> Would you say, or actually, have you seen the, it's been like a rapid embracement of being told what to do. Hmm. You know, and that's, that's what's really bothered me. Uh, probably the most out of this is I'll say something like, look, we should remove all mask mandates and I'll remove all social distancing, allow private businesses to open themselves up however they see fit. If they want masks, that is their right to do so. If they do not, that is their right to do so. Allow the patrons to choose which businesses they support and go to. And I am met with such immediate vitriol on my stance in that position. And I'm like, literally a year ago, we didn't even know what masks were. What? Why are we so quick to say, no, shut it all down. We must wear these things. I'm like, that's not, so, that. there's no logical reason that anybody should be so happy about this, but people are, they're aligning their identities with this. And it's, I can't even think of, I want to say March maybe. So we're, I don't even know how long this has been going Eight on. It, it feels like forever, man. <laughs> like yeah. it truly like, I'm like, my God, but in, in that amount of time, people have not only embraced, but will now defend with, with everything. Cause they want to be told what to do and, and be a part of the, the big system saying, yeah, this is the way it should be. And I'm like, no, no, it's not. Is that, a, is that due to the low agency? We've got, like we've got two generations of people raised in daycare. So like their mother squirts them out and, and they towel the kid off and put him right into daycare. And so they don't, they're never, they've not been mothered. They've not been mothered during their first two or three years of life. And so they're used to going to a group where they're told to do, to conform and be a good sheep and bleat the time you're supposed to bleat. And here's your bottle. And, you know, they're, they're basically treated like farm animals not like humans. And so now they're behaving like farm animals. They're being told, where do we go to slaughter? Uh, you know, where should we wear our masks? And what they're, what they're doing is they're simply conforming to the programming they were given in early childhood. Uh, you know, if you, if you were raised by your mother at home until you were old enough, and then your father was highly involved in your life, um, nobody, nobody tells my son what to do. You have to get him to cooperate with you. Otherwise, he is so stubborn, he will fight you to the to the death over it. And, you know, even my wife, she has to reason with him and convince him because we're peaceful parents, we don't hit our kids. And I think even if I did, I think he'd find a way to prevent get revenge on me. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, he's he's definitely not a person that you can manipulate and control. And he's this is because of the way we raised him. But so many kids were raised like if you if you're a um, uh, a teacher looking after a group of kids, you can't have 30 individuals. You can't manage 30 individuals. You have to mold them into a group. And that's the whole point of public schooling is to mold them into a group that conforms to one set of behavior and does everything the same to, to create uniformity. There are times when that is useful. Um, the military does that. They mold you into a group to make you work together. But that's for a very specific purpose. That's to go out and kill people that are threatening your country. And that's necessary and that's needed and we need to have that capacity. But that's not something you should be doing with children. Like that, that mushing their personalities down into fitting into a box. That's not something we should be doing. 
Because when they're kids, if you do that to an adult, he can understand that when I put on this uniform, I'm part of this team and I behave according to the team's rules. Then when I go back into civilian life, I'm me again. A kid doesn't get that. They're forming their initial understanding of who they are. And they're mostly forming this in a government institution. Children form most of their identity while they're in a government institution since about 1990s, when people started putting their kids like crazy into daycare. And so the 30-something-year-olds now and down, they're products of the state. So, of course, they're going to want the state to tell them what to do because the state is mommy and daddy. That, that is a rabbit hole. <laughs> I think we could do a whole separate podcast just yeah. on that. That was, that was great. Yeah, I really dig the way you speak about your son. You know, you have three sons. I'm assuming they're all like these, these little individuals going forward. My wife and I, we also follow Peaceful Parenting. And when Corona hit and we saw what was happening with the school system, we decided to homeschool full time. We decided we'd gone back and forth. You know, they were in a charter school, a great standard. You know, it was an awesome school, but we saw what was coming. So we like, nah, we'll do it ourselves. And now we were talking, it was yesterday or the day before, and they can't go back to public school. It, it, I guarantee it'll be like, you know, my dad said, and I'm going to get phone calls nonstop all day because my kids are not just going to blindly accept the leadership. And I, I hadn't thought about it truly until you were speaking on this, how later on in life, they're going to be like, I'm not blindly going to accept this. You must present clear facts and you're not going to force me to follow this. Like I don't force my, I speak to my kids. I give them the respect I give adults. You know, I don't, I don't have to like be a domineering, you know, physical force to smash them into a compliance. Like I, I'm a, a, a man I inspire and they want to follow because I've proven I've got their best intentions in mind. So I could not see them trying to, be plopped into a herd like they would lead a rebellion like like your son like, come on guys we're gonna rally that's one teacher there's 30 of us let's go yep it's interesting yeah i go to the park with my son there's a whole load of kids playing according to all the rules with their parents making them go up a slide and come down a slide and do everything according to the rules and they're it's it's like a pink floyd video man they look like a bunch of robots oh my, my God. son comes to the park the he grinder. screams at the top of his lungs let's fight <laughs> and then he grabs a bunch of the, his friends, a bunch of the boys, and then they all start fighting and wrestling and they jump on me and try to knock me down and um, right away rough and tumble. And I see the looks on the parents' faces. Uh, one of the mothers, she says to me, I don't understand why boys like to fight so much and why they like weapons so much. They want like every time they ask for a present, it's it's a toy gun or a sword or or something like that. And I'm like, well, that's because they're training to be men. And one of the domains of men is fighting, is war. And of course, they're interested in the tools of that domain. They're just being men. You shouldn't, shouldn't discourage that. You should help them to understand that it's hard. She's a single mother. Uh, you should help them to understand that in its proper place, where that should fit in in their life. And it's, it's very difficult for a lot of parents. It used to be difficult, I understand, for women to get this. But so many men today, it's a lot of children are raised with both their parents, but none, neither of them are men. You know, they're basically raised by a woman and an adult child. And this is this is a huge problem. And I've, I've had these guys as my clients sometimes. And I ask them, like, why don't you step take another step up and, and, you know, really take on the full responsibilities of being a man? And they said, honestly, I don't want to show up my dad. Like he's my, my dad was so weak. And if I excel and do the things my dad couldn't do, I'm going to show him up. He's, he's going he's gonna to feel bad because I've, I've surpassed him and I'm only in my 20s. And that holds a lot of men back. And 
one of the, the like third or fourth question I ask men in coaching is why don't you go to your dad and ask him these questions? And I never get someone go, Oh yeah, it's a great idea. We don't need to finish the session. I can go ask my dad. Never. They, they can't ask their dad basic questions about masculinity. And this is why it's so important that men get into groups because they don't have a dad. They don't have an uncle. They don't have a grandpa they can ask. But if you're in a group of men, you're going to start getting all of that knowledge that you never got when you were a kid and, and a young man and that you can't now ask your father to give you. It's unfortunate to hear that. And I've seen it as well as not allowing young boys to participate in like combat or mock combat. And I try to explain it. Here's how I explain it to my wife is I told her, I was like, look, he has to know what will hurt and what won't hurt. And the only way to figure out what's a real punch and what's a soft punch is to wrestle and play. And like, oh, I'm sorry. I went too hard on that one. Now I know this much power equals pain to my friend. I'm not trying to hurt him. This is how we play. It's like dogs. Yeah. They'll nip and nip and nip. They're not trying to kill each other, but that's how they learn. You'll hear the one yelp, like, oh, all right, that dog just learned a lesson. And the other dog did too. One learned that hurts. The other learned that hard of a bite causes pain. And this is how you can learn to control your violence. You can deliver the amount of violence you want to deliver. A lot of men, when you see them go berserk, they, they just snap because it's so built up and they don't even know how to release that. You see a lot of videos on like YouTube of uh, Biden supporters going to fight the Trump supporters. And it's always like this, this little angry, like very feminine looking man going swinging like, like a banshee. And he has no idea how to control his body, how to control violence. And the Trump guy who's always uh, shown in the more masculine role kind of just like takes the slap and then just like tosses him. And it's he almost man, laughs at it. It's, it's almost yeah, laughable. It's, it's honestly like when your sons jump on you, it's like you're playing yeah. with them. Like, all right, you try little buddy. You know, they have no clue. And that's that's incredibly unfortunate because that is a part of who we are as men. And to not develop that is to not develop a, a huge pillar in what makes us who we are. It's, it's a weak foundation. And I think nowadays it's important that we do this wrestling a little bit with our daughters as well. I, I don't have any daughters, but um, with our daughters as well, because women are getting this message from Hollywood that a hundred pound woman can easily beat up a 200 pound man. If she has a bit of martial arts training, uh, which if she's a woman, she doesn't even need because she's automatically great. And so they get this idea that they're invincible, that they're wonder woman or something like this. And then they get out into the real world and they put themselves in stupid and dangerous positions thinking that they can get themselves out of it. When in reality, even if they weigh the same amount as the guy, they'll be about half as strong as him. So it's, it's, it's good for us to have that kind of wrestling with our daughters as well, for them to realize that a man is a powerful thing, you know, and you need to have respect for other people's power. Even as a man, you need to have respect for other men. You know, you, you can get in a hundred fights and it can, it can, you know, nobody can get all that badly hurt. And then one time you fall down and hit your head on a rock and you're dead or someone else does. And now you're in jail. And so understanding the, the power, the physical power that we have and how to manage it is going to give us respect for that. I think it's, it's the same issue that, that happened. Uh, you know, if, if you demilitarize a country, they're more likely to get into a war because there's, there seems to be less consequences of fighting them now. And so we, as men, part of having agency is being able to do the things that men do. And one of those is fight. And so we need to be able to have some capacity for that and some understanding of that. And all of this should be being trained as children. So wrestle with your kids, teach them, you know, what the limits are and what they should do. And this helps too with bullying because sometimes kids are wrestling with each other and they get hurt and they, oh, I was being bullied. 
And all it was, was it's some kid that's not been properly socialized and doesn't understand how to play with other kids without hurting them. A lot of times it's not malicious. Yep. I truly believe that we are being conditioned by social media and by the electrons to, to have a binary thinking and mm -hmm. online, you can talk so much smack. You can say what you want, say what you want. And eventually it programs you to just in person do the same and you will get wrecked in person because, but they, they take the rules of social media and apply it to the real world. And that's not how it works. You know, that that's just the, it's different rules. You're in the arena, you know, as opposed to being behind a screen. And I think when men forget that, they find out real quick how mistaken they were. And yeah, you know, sort of your point on 21 con when we meet up. It's different. You, you and I can argue online when we meet in person. It's like, all right, hey, we'll have that discussion, but we're not going to sit there and like, all right, now we got to fight. Whoa, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa. It's an idea that we're battling right now. This isn't, this doesn't warrant physical confrontation because that's, that should be the last, you know, card you pull out. Well, and part of it is too online. We have no way of, of having any kind of a hierarchy. How do you have a hierarchy online, really, unless it's your website and you control it and you're at the top? But how do you have a hierarchy on Facebook? You can't. You can't really have a hierarchy there. You get a group of men together, and in about 30 seconds, everybody knows the hierarchy. Like we, we all know what the hierarchy is in the group. We all know who's in charge of the group. We all know who the second level of command is, and we all know who the mass in the middle is, like the, the average guys. And it is... And it doesn't matter how elite the group is, it immediately forms into a hierarchy. Um, this is because of how men work. You know, if you're a man and you're sitting in a room and another man walks in, you ask a couple of questions. Can I take him? Can I fight him? Do, am I going to have to? Does he look like he's going to start a fight? And is he got any other men allied with him in the room that he's, he's with? Is he coming in with a group or is he by himself or does he know the people here? Um, it's just, you know, a woman walks in the room, you say, is she attractive enough to have sex with? Uh, is she connected to any of the men here? And is she in trouble? You know, that's basically three questions we ask for, for women. But we, we ask these questions instinctively, instantly when people walk in the room. And so a hierarchy forms, you know, and a different person walks in the room might adjust the hierarchy slightly. But we understand this and that hierarchy prevents fighting because we don't generally challenge people higher up in the hierarchy. Uh, the way that we challenge them is by just being better men and working our way up into the hierarchy. We don't have to physically challenge them. And this is how men keep the peace with each other. The most peaceful groups of men that I've ever met are often the most masculine and most dangerous men because they have respect for each other's danger, uh, dangerousness. And you get a bunch of effeminate men and they're constantly fighting with each other. They're constantly arguing and screaming at each other and having childish fits because they don't have any respect for each other and they don't have any kind of a hierarchy. They've got this flat, basically everybody's at the bottom level of hierarchy. In the book, it, it sort of plays to this. And I, I want to hear, you know, sort of your deeper take on this because I, I have my opinion through the red pill, the blue pill, white and black. But you were talking about the external limitations that we have. So fitting into the system. And we talk a lot about unplugging from the system and how that prevents men with a choice. So could you talk about red pill versus blue pill and then separately talk about black pill versus white pill? Yeah, so... Let me just open this here so that I'm consistent with what I wrote. Yeah, um, the blue pill, you know, a lot of people will look at this as basically blue pill wrong, red pill right. And that's excessive level of simplification of the situation. What the blue pill is, is it's a blind, willful blindness. I choose not to, I choose to see things the way I want to see them and not the way they really are. And you don't want to accept reality because there's something that's painful in reality there that you don't want to see. 
And so you start passing off your blame onto others. You say, it's not my responsibility. I don't want anything to do with it. I want to be an NPC. I just want to go through life, um, you know, barely one step above acting on animal instinct. And that's how I want to live. And a lot of people, that's how they feel comfortable. They don't want to take personal responsibility. And if you weren't taught personal responsibility as a child, it can be painful to learn as an adult. And they're not willing to face that pain. The red pill, though, is it is an awareness of the reality of nature. So you say, this is reality. This is nature. This is how things really are. And this is the dangers and opportunities in it. And then accepting those and accepting personal responsibility for how you act in the world. Uh, that's what, what I call the red pill. And it's a slightly different version of the red pill, I think, than what some people describe it as. But it really is the difference between I accept reality and I don't accept reality. What I liked about that is as soon as we were talking about the hierarchy of men, how so many men don't want to admit that that exists. And it's a, it's a willful, like, no, no, that's not how it works. Or when you talk about women, we say women want a strong mate that can protect and provide, you know, not just strong, but also, you know, able to care for, you know, and to bring the needs and have the needs be met. And like, no, I just want her to love me for me. Look, you, you can't. These are just the rules. This is the game. And, and being an NPC, as you were saying, just above animal instinct, you're robbing yourself of truly living. By not playing the game, you're not a lot. Like, it's a good thing that there you're are not, You're not fully human. Exactly. You're choosing and that's a good to thing. not be fully human. You want to experience the entire spectrum. And a part of that is being able to immerse in and then start to continue to thrive. And your program is designed to help people like recognize and then improve upon. Insert yourself as a playable character and then level up, brother. Yeah. You know, if you don't accept personal responsibility for your life and your choices, that means that you have no control over your life and your choices. That's a bloody scary place to be. That is frightening that you have no power over what happens to you. You're just a, you know, a leaf blowing around in the wind. That is really scary. Blue pill people are afraid. They're frightened. Red pill people generally aren't afraid. They, they, they take on this, this understanding of reality. And at first they're like, oh man, this is, this is really, this is kind of scary. And then they realize they have some control and they figure out what they need to do to change about their life, to get control. And they're like, okay, now I feel powerful. You know, take, I've taken personal responsibility. I'm now powerful. I can control what happens in my life. Maybe not everything. Of course, we're not omnipotent, but we can, we can learn how to work with reality to get what we want. Now, how does that play into the white pill versus black pill? Yeah, so the black pill, black pill, you have to be basically red pilled in order to be black pilled. So um, the problem is, is that some people will see all of the danger, they'll see reality the way it is, they'll see how dangerous it is, they'll see how difficult it is to take advantage of opportunities and how much personal responsibility they're going to have to take on to be a fully human. And they go, Oh, that sucks. I don't want to do any of that. Everything is everything is terrible. Uh, and I've just decided to give up and, you know, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get married because women suck. I'm not going to start a job because most of them, um, most of them go bankrupt. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do the X, Y, or Z because this thing, I'm not going to do it. I just can't, I can't live because the world is too hard. And the white pill is looking at all of this and saying, there's a ton of opportunity here. I, I was talking to uh, John from Bulldog Mindset. Uh, the other day and he says you know he says we say a uh, top five percent man gets all the women and that there's guys that go oh that's terrible oh no what am i going to do i'm not a top five percent man and then there's men that go hey it's not that hard to be a top five percent man when you look at what you're competing with 
and they're like, Hey, this is great. I got like 50% of the women for me and, and I'm only in, and I'm on top 5% man. And how you look at reality, how you um, choose to interpret this will decide whether you've taken the black pill or the white pill. And this is actually a bit of a problem with men that take the red pill. They often black pill themselves and everyone around them. And I've, I've had clients like this. They, they've black pilled their wives so badly. It literally, if, if you talk too much reality to women, it literally dries them up. You know, they, I don't understand. My wife doesn't want to have sex. And, and, you know, we were talking about kids and now she says, no, well, yeah, you keep black pilling her. You keep telling her how horrible the world is. Of course she doesn't want to have kids. You know, she's, def she's making what it seems like a rational decision in light of the fact that you're telling her that you're not willing to take responsibility for dealing with the world. And so, you know, that the black pill can be very dangerous for us as an individual. It's natural state to go into sometimes when people first hear about reality, but to stay there is terminal. It is, it's really a nihilistic death of, of everything. It's the way I've tried to explain it. You know, people talk about the anger phase. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to see like, all right, I've been playing by a set of rules that don't exist or my parents gave me something that wasn't proper because they didn't have the proper guidelines. I was like, that's okay. You know, that's not a permanent state to be. It's like you said, you know, it's okay to hit that point. All right, I took the black pill. I recognize everything. I'm a little bitter. Okay, but now you or learn from it, grow. You know, if you were eating, the, you were eating vegan because you thought that was the best way to go. And all of a sudden you realize, well, I feel like crap all the time and I'm not making any gains. Well, okay, you can be mad that you wasted a year vegan, but is that the end of your life? Is that where you stop? Of course not. So just go to the next phase. And you know, you guys, you offered a great example of the white pill in the book with Beethoven. And I didn't know this story about the letter that he had written and how he was at the end. And could you dive into that and how it's, it's a great example of the white pill and how anybody, nobody has an excuse when one of the most brilliant minds of humankind found a way to go when it was, he was stripped of, of his greatest gift or one of his greatest gifts and that hearing the beautiful music he was creating. Yeah. So Beethoven, um, everyone knows who that is. It's a, a famous um, uh, composer. He actually, there are a lot of composers. They hit this peak really young and then they kind of were mediocre in their later life. He just kept getting better. You know, everything he produced was better than the thing he did before. And he kept getting better and better. And he even, was innovating in the instruments being used and he was making things that were more and more difficult to produce uh, in order to, to be very experimental in his music. And then he started going deaf and it was not anything that he could control. It was beyond his ability to control it. it we're not actually sure why he was going deaf. And he went almost 100% deaf. How, and yet he continued to write music. There was a point where he was so depressed he wanted to kill himself over it. You know, he, he thought, oh, if I can't write music, there's no point in living. Well, we see this in history. A lot of the most successful people, they were very, so focused on what they were doing. They didn't have really much of a family. They didn't have, you know, they, they didn't make anything outside of their amazing area of art or literature or music. And this is really what it was. His, his music was his children. His, uh, his music was his legacy to, to the world. And he was so focused on it. And then when he lost that ability, he basically lost his reason to live. And yet he realized that he could still continue. You know, he, he pushed past that and he made, um, I think his last two or three symphonies, 
he was completely deaf during during the time that he was producing those. Um, he would have music played super loud and he would listen to the vibrations of the music. Um, you know, he'd go right up to where the instruments were and listen to the vibrations and things. And to a large extent, he just had to reconstruct it in his brain. He understood how the instruments worked and, you know, he had to construct that in his brain. Now, um, from the outside, we don't see that. We see the, the symphony. It's fantastic. It's amazing. And we would never know that it was composed by a deaf man. You know, we, we can suffer loss. Uh, my, my wife um, had twins a little over a year ago and we're, we, she was 40 when she had the twins. So that's high risk uh, age twins increases the risk. And the first baby was difficult. The second one couldn't, they couldn't get him uh, out and his heart rate was dropping and they took her into sur emergency surgery. And the doctor says, this will take half an hour. He says, if it takes any longer, something's gone wrong. So like an hour and a half later, they come out to tell me what's going on. And the doctor looked like wrecked, totally wrecked. I'm like, ah, oh, crap, this really gone bad. I think she died. And I, but I had previously played a game, which I, I not a game, but played a psychological um, story to myself that I use in the book. I teach you in the book where you say, what's the worst thing that could happen? And I thought to myself, the worst thing that could happen is my wife and the two kids dying in birth. That's the worst thing that can happen. And what would I do about it? I'd be sad. I'd go through a black feeling period. I would feel terrible. Um, it would seem like that was the end of the world. But I can't stay like that. I have another kid. And I have people that rely on me to help them. And I have to dig myself out. And I can be happy again, no matter what I lose. I can, I can turn around. I can be happy again. So even though it was... It turned out that it was just a really hard cesarean that, that they ended up having to perform and the doctors were pretty tired from it afterwards. But being willing to accept any bad news that comes to you and let it hit you and not let it destroy you is powerful. Uh, you know, people talk about that being stoicism and stoicism and agency are very connected. A lot of these stoic exercises are in pursuit of agency in pursuit of control over your emotions. Will you let the emotion control you or are you the master of the emotion? It's not about whether you have the emotion or not. It's about who's in control. The, the quote from Beethoven is, I will seize fate by the throat. He says mm. that in the letter. And it's, it's incredible when you think of the position he was in, the position you were in. You know, you, you have a choice. And for all those who right now might be in that phase of anger, you have a choice. Just keep going. Like just, all right, this is happening. What's next? What's the next step? You can be angry about it, but you have to start taking a step. You can't stay there. That's just, that's, that's dying well before entering the ground. Yeah. And if you, if we think about emotions, one of the, the big problems, and I talk about this in the book as well. One of the big problems in the manosphere in understanding emotions is that there's this dichotomy of a man that has emotions isn't really a man, or you should, and this is not really part of the manosphere, it's more um, on the other side, that men should give in to all of their emotions and cry a lot and all of this stuff. And neither of those are correct. Those are both two ends of a dysfunctional spectrum. The correct understanding of emotions is that they are emotions, they're motions, they motivate us. They are things that motivate us to behave in a certain way. Now, we need to be in control of them, but they give us energy. Think of it like a steam engine. 
and the emotions are heating that steam up and then we can use it to get things done. So, you know, we use the love of our family to motivate us to make certain decisions and to work hard. We use the excitement because excitement's an emotion as well that we get from, um, from, from say doing our job or helping people. I, I get a huge high off of helping people. You know, a client comes back to me and says, I got that raise I went for. And I feel almost as good as they do. It's amazing. Those are emotions. And those, I let those feelings wash over me and motivate me. You know, we, it's, it's natural to hate things that threaten your family. It's natural to be angry about um, dis, you know, dysfunctional society that we live in. That's natural. But what are we going to do about it? Are we going to take that emotion and motivate us to do something positive with it? Or are we going to stew in it? Because just like a steam engine, if, that, if the steam engine, the pressure builds up too high, it'll explode. And that's what happens to a lot of men. They have no emotions. And apparently, they're just under the surface. They have no emotions. They show no display of emotions. They don't use their emotions for anything until they explode and destroy themselves. And we need to either know how to get too much emotional energy to bleed that off. There's an escape valve in most steam engines. And uh, you can pull the escape valve and let a lot of pressure off if the, if the boiler gets too hot. Or we should be using it to get stuff done. Use it to run that emotional engine and to make things happen. And that all of the emotions we have are, can be used productively. And to that point, it brings me to the final topic I wanted to bring to you, which was when men hit that point, they're like, look, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Noah. I, I'm listening to the podcast. I'm ready to take on the challenge. I'm at the point where, you know, I'm going to start making some changes. And then they're going to run into this somewhat of a feedback from their, their social circle, from their family, from their friends. And they're, they're going to have to find a way to deal with it because a lot nobody likes change. And a lot of men who go through change are like, well, why is this not being embraced and celebrated? You know, I remember when I hit a month sober, I was like, nice, I'm a month sober. Nobody else cared. <laughs> that was for me. And I was like, for a, for a moment, I was like, why don't you guys care? Like, why is nobody like, where's the confetti? Where's my party? I was like, you know what, this, I'm ridiculous. This is for me. Let me embrace this and go forward. You know what I did? But you, you touch on GRRSM which is gossiping, rallying, ridicule, shaming, moralizing. And to me, I viewed it as the crab in the bucket, but it, it seems it's more than that. It's almost strategic in the way people respond to others breaking out of their, their box. So could you touch yeah, you, on the GRSM? Yeah, well, I'll give you an example. Um, so imagine that you're a man and you've basically been letting your, your wife run roughshod over you for years and you've got a you know dead bedroom and you're you're kind of effeminate a little bit and you decide you know i'm sick of this i want to change my life i want to become the man that i know i could be and you start working out and you get more fit and you learn how to properly interact with your wife she might see these changes in you and go he's leveling up and i'm not and at some point the difference between us will be so great he's going to leave me for a younger woman because technically you could get up that high and she's got a choice. She can go, I should level up too. Let's go find out what he's doing. And I'm going to level up too. You know, I'm going to go with him to the gym. I'm going to help him with his diet. I'm going to become so useful to him that as he's leveling up, he sees me level up. He loves me even more, but that's not how most people react. Most people who have that level of agency wouldn't have found themselves in that position to begin with. And so they say, Look, I'm, I, I can't force him to stop working out, 
but I can shame him about the time he's spending at the gym. I can tell him that, you know, uh, you, you want to buy a gun to defend the family, oh, but a gun could be used against us and it's not safe and we got kids in the house and they'll come up with all these excuses or they'll try to shame you for spending time with your male friends instead of having, uh, you know, all your time spent slaving away at tasks that she's giving you. And you will start to, you'll say to her, maybe, you know, one of the best things I did with my wife is say, you know, I'm not doing any more, any more housework. I'm not doing anything around the house anymore. Uh, that's now your responsibility. And I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll contribute by more by paying someone to help you clean a bit if you need some help. And so by really separating those tasks completely, you know, my wife complained about it, of course, at first. And almost right away, I saw though an improvement in behavior. So verbally, she said some things, because that's what she was programmed to say, because that's what women are told. Women are told that a man who doesn't do housework is a bad husband. But they know that's not true. They know it in their body and their like soul deep inside of them. And they see the changes when you do that. And you know, because they will respond physically to you um, in a positive way, even if they're saying something that's not true. But there are also people who might be using you, they might get something out of you There's a lot of uh, young men that are basically, you know, they're, they're doing something for their family, where they're essentially a slave. And they're trying to break out of that. And their family sees the improvement and they try to pull them back down with shaming because they don't want them escaping. They don't want to lose that power that they had over them because they lose the value they have. And society in general, we talked about this before, doesn't want high agency men because of how dangerous we are to the tyrannical order that, we, that is constantly trying to be imposed upon us. And so people are programmed to fight anyone that wants to break out of that. Look how demonized masculinity itself is. You know, we understand the positivity of it. People who are demonizing it sometimes understand the positivity as well, but they're programmed to say these certain things. These responses are often programmed. It's not their voice speaking. It's the voice of whoever programmed them. And so we need to learn to ignore that. We need to say, look, I know what I'm doing is right. I don't need to explain myself and I don't need to ask permission. Now, this is one of the most important things of being a man is stop asking for permission. Do what needs to be done. Don't explain yourself and take full responsibility for yourself. And eventually people around you start to adjust. You know, there, there comes a point in life where the people who were shaming you go, hey, this isn't productive. I'm not getting anything out of this. He can't be shamed. You know, I, I say young men will sometimes say to me, you're, you're shaming men for not being masculine. And, uh, you know, they'll and I'm saying, no, I'm not shaming you. I'm you're shaming yourself after you hear me. So I talk about what you should be and you feel shame because you don't meet up to that. That's you shaming yourself. You can't shame a man who has nothing to be ashamed of. You can't manipulate a man using shame if he has no shame. And so a big part of learning agency will make you invulnerable to manipulation. And uh, that makes you powerful, but it takes other people's power away from them that they had over you. And people will fight to keep that power over you. This is also, I believe, highlighting the strength of the group. The group setting is where you have others who do have the best intention for you. And therefore, yep. the advice they provide not only comes from a place of, you know, pure intention, they, they want you to do well, but they're willing to, to hurt your feelings to help you get better. And therefore, if you're just being a jerk, they can say, look, you know, you, you're, you're, you're improving, sure, but you're doing it negatively. You're pushing others down to build yourself up. And maybe 
if you took this angle instead of that, you'd do better. Or maybe your wife is correct. You're being an asshole. You know, you're, you're being a, a big jerk about this, you know, and you don't have to be. That's just the, the anger coming out through your improvement. And if you tried it this way, you could not only improve, but build her up. But it's different when you hear it from a group of men who want you to win compared to just the wife saying you're being a jerk. You know, it's a yeah. totally different perspective that you get. And therefore, in the group setting, and I've seen this myself, it it's received better. And men are like, all right, I'm willing to listen to you because you're saying I'm being an asshole to try to help me where I thought she was be, saying I was being an asshole just to because I was improving beyond her level of, of yes. acceleration and growth. Well, and <clears throat> excuse me, and now, of course, not all women will respond that way, but there is going to be a delay between you've made self-improvement and when, for example, even people that care about you will have fully accepted it. So if you're a man and you've had a very equalitarian relationship with your spouse and suddenly you say, look, I want, I want to change that and I want to do the man stuff and you do the woman stuff and let's have a, a more uh, dimorphic relationship and I'm going to now take leadership role over the family. You, you're saying that doesn't make you the leader. You're demonstrating it for two or three days doesn't make you the leader. It takes some time before she'll start believing this is true and before she'll start adapting to it. And in the, what happens with a lot of men is they're like, well, I, I told my wife I was going to be the leader and she didn't immediately fall down on her knees and say, thank you and worship me. And, and they, they get carried away. It's like, dude, you've, you've been a weak husband for how many ever years? You're going to need to be a strong husband for a while before she starts believing this is true. I mean, it, it honestly sounds like bullshit when you say it and at, and it's only provable after you've shown it. it takes time you have to demonstrate it and that's not really something i mean you need to talk to other men to hear that you're not going to figure if you could figure this out on your own you wouldn't have been in the position you're in to begin with this is this is part of the thing with self-improvement is the kind of people that can improve in a vacuum on their own are the kind of people that have already gotten to such a high level that they don't need that self-improvement help you know they're already onto something else but Everyone that is highly successful, they have coaches and they have a team. Look at every athlete. They have a coach and they have a team around them to make them more powerful, to make them better at their, their sport. Uh, every, every CEO, he usually has two or three mentors that he talks to. He's got a team around him to make him shine. We need that. We need mentors and we need a team around us to be successful. That's how we're designed. That's how we should be. And to get the most out of life, that's what we need. And I think that highlights the point of the program. You know, you're reprogramming yeah. your life. You're, you're going from here are some things I'm doing to get better to here's who I am. You know, yes. it's not something you do any longer. It's just a part of who you are. You are a man who leads. You are a man who takes care of yourself mentally, physically, spiritually. You are a man who throws those ropes to help others along the way. It's no longer a conscious thought of, oh, I should work on this. It's no, you just work on it. You know, you kind of skip that. It becomes a habit. So when you're talking about your pathway to agency, you know, this is, this is a program to help you get to that point. So Noah, I appreciate all the time. I mean, we've almost hit two hours of discussion and we haven't even scratched, you know, this is the tip of the iceberg. So for those who join the program, you know, there's 12 weeks and that's where you get everything that's still under the water that we haven't even discussed yet. So for those who are looking to join in the program, or maybe they want to DM you to see if they're a good fit. How could they go about contacting you, reaching out and finding more of your work? So you can find me on Twitter, unless they ban me, at um, Noah Ravoy. 
Uh, I was just kicked off of Facebook along with a couple hundred of my saw friends. Saw that. Oh my yeah. god. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, we're 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 somehow dangerous. Um, my friends were saying that when they would go on chats that we had to see all my comments are removed, and it says that they were uh, abusive or dangerous, something like this. It was, you know, they they find men of high agency dangerous. The moment I come out with a book, uh, I get banned. I don't think it's directly due to the book. But it is due to the fact that I'm part of a group of people who are moving forward with making civilization better. We have each our own little projects going forward. And I think this is going to spread. I think they're going to try to kick off from the main social media platforms, the men that are teaching men how to be men, basically. So you can find me at Twitter for now. Uh, you can find me on Gab. Also, it's, it's at Noah Lavoie. And you can find me, if you want to go to the course directly, it's Pathway to Agency. There's a form on the first pathwaytoagency.com and there is a form on the first page there you can ask questions and i usually answer those within about 24 hours you can also go and sign up directly to the course and if you sign up i'm going to contact you just to make sure you're a good fit and if for some reason you're not i'll refund you the money and uh and and you know you can do do perhaps some coaching sessions before you take the course and that's basically if you're not ready for the course yet you might need a couple of coaching sessions first it's been an excellent discussion, Noah. Thank, Thank you for you your very time. Much. Awesome. Uh, for everybody who tuned in, this has been another episode of the Family Alpha Podcast. I will have all the links to Noah's content below. Look into it. Let's get yourself some more agency and get you start reprogramming your life. Because look, things aren't getting easier. You know, you need to have that 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 sense of empowerment and that sense of purpose. And you've got to take ownership over yourself, that sense of sovereignty as a man. And that's exactly what Noah's program's providing you. So take care. We'll see you next episode. Thanks for listening. You can join our private men's only community at the fraternity of And don't forget to find Zach on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Zach small underscore.